This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. The following episode is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. My name is Dan Roosh. I'm the founder and CEO of Rocketrip, based in New York City. Um, what I love about travel is lots of things. What I love about the consumer side of travel um, is travel is a really emotional product. Lots of people feel emotionally connected to travel. Travel is a way to discover the world. Travel is an incredible way to connect with people, to disconnect with people, um, and it's just a fascinating product. On, on the corporate side, um, travel is a really misunderstood industry. Companies globally spend one and a quarter trillion dollars on flights, hotels, cars, and trains, and it's all being spent by people who are emotionally connected to the product they're purchasing. And I think that's a fascinating problem to solve. There is an incredible misalignment between the intent of business travel policies and the way employees manage their travel expenses. The result: tremendous financial waste. Rocketrip is a SaaS software that incentivizes employees to make responsible financial decisions while on corporate travel, and it actually works because employees are rewarded for making mindful decisions. From New York City, this is Travel Is Your Business, covering the intersection of technology and business in the travel industry with Pavan Ball and John Matson. And now, here are your hosts. Today, we have a guest co-host in, in the room. We have uh, Nick Vivian. He is the editorial director of T-News. What's up? What is up? Dude, Happy you, to be here. When did you come in town? Last night. From where? You come in? Tell the Vegas. audience. I mean, I know where. Oh, I did actually. Vegas. I had no idea you were in Vegas. Okay, cool. You went straight, came yeah. straight in? Yeah, nine days in Vegas. You guys are based in Florida, though, right? We're all over the place. I'm in Dallas. Okay. Yeah. Got so it. So we cool. kind of go where uh, the wind takes us, I guess. What's going on, Dan? Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks for uh, coming by over here on this beautiful Friday morning. You get it. If you can, take a moment, give our audience a uh, Reader's Digest kind of thumbnail sketch of who you are and uh, what you do over at Rocket Trip. Sure. Uh, so uh, Rocket Trip is a behavioral change platform designed for large organizations uh, that have an interest in controlling costs, but but maintaining a positive culture of employee centricity and a progressive culture where um, em- employees are rewarded for great behavior. Um, and so started the business back in 2013, really off the backbone of what Google built internally. So Google back in 2008 launched their own internal version of, of what has now become Rocket Trip. Um, that's a platform that's designed to Number one, predict what a trip should cost, but more importantly, um, proactively reward employees who lean into making a extraordinary choice on behalf of the organization and themselves. So good example of this is if your policy allows business class, but you choose to fly coach, or if your policy allows a five-star or four-star hotel, but you choose to stay with a friend, or you share a room with a colleague, or you Airbnb mm. it, any one uh, of a number of behaviors that is is really cost sensitive, beneficial for the company, beneficial for you, um, and and goes above and beyond the call of duty. You know, the call of duty is your travel policy, right? So above and beyond the call of duty to reduce spending. Also, a very very popular show. I mean, uh, uh, Call of Duty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah totally different, game. totally different than Rocket <laughs> Trip, but but yeah, just just as much just as much fun. Um, so the concept is. Rocket Trip predicts what a trip should cost, and if the employee can beat our budget, then half of the savings goes back to the company, half of the savings goes to the employee. So clever. That's pretty incredible, yeah. yeah. I mean, what type of market are we talking about over here? Because, I mean, in my own personal kind of you know corporate travel experience, that is very, very true. I am looking to bunk up with people and try to save. And, you know, oftentimes when we go on um, travel, I guess, engagements with different conferences, we get a travel stipend. Yep. 
and uh, we benefit ourselves by bunking up or finding an Airbnb versus, you know, staying at the, yep. the hotel that's uh, allotted and things like that. I mean, it's a massive problem, right? So this is what we talked about um, in terms of what I love about the corporate travel space. Um, you know, a lot of people think that the, the corporate travel space is, is antiquated and clunky and conservative, and, and it is and it isn't. I mean, a lot of the technology that exists in corporate travel is very old, which makes it difficult in some ways to innovate. But once you can get past that, um, this industry is an incredible opportunity for innovation. So I, I come out of the ad tech space, you know, and back in 2006, seven, eight, we used to get excited about a $90 billion online ad spend. It was like, oh my God, that's such a big market. We can innovate in that. Did you say 90 billion? Yeah. Are you about to say it's small? Uh, globally, <laughs> globally, companies on this planet every single year spend one and a quarter trillion dollars on flights, hotels, cars, and trains, and it's all being spent by people that don't give a shit how much they spend. Yeah. Can I curse on this show? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah, please do. <laughs> totally cost insensitive buyers because they're spending other people's money. And mm -hmm. that is a fascinating problem because you're not talking about, I'm not suggesting that people, employees are bad people and they're going out of their way to exploit their companies. Mm -hmm. But this is human. This is biological. We as human beings or number one, selfish, and number two, lazy. And again, this is, doesn't make us bad. This is self-preservation. If a company tells me that I'm allowed to fly business class and I'm allowed to stay at the Ritz, then it's expected sure behavior will. that yeah. I sure will, right? Mm -hmm. The only way to change that paradigm is to create friction by, by controlling policy and mm -hmm. tightening the screws, which lots of companies do, and that's fine, right? I'm not suggesting that the stick is not a successful way to change behavior. But it does create friction, which eventually does create churn, and companies can only turn the screws so far because you have to stay competitive with your peers. So even if you turn the screws and even if you force employees to only fly coach or only stay in three-star hotels, lots of our clients have that policy in place. There's still a massive amount of room between the upper outer limits of what's permissible in policy and zero cost. Mm -hmm. And it's just a function of motivating the right type of behavior within your employee base. It's no different than sales commissions. Why do we pay salespeople commissions? We pay salespeople commissions because we know financial incentives change behavior in incredibly predictable and uniform ways. And so if we can introduce the same kind of predictable motivation, but instead of encouraging people to mm -hmm. perform a job, we encourage them to save money we should see the same results or similar results. And what we're finding is by introducing the motivation to save, by enlisting employees as engaged and enthusiastic participants in a culture of cost sensitivity that they get excited about. This is not about forcing they employees to save money. They want to yeah. save money. They're now competitive for who can yep. save the company the most amount of money. So now they're competing with their peers. They're taking connect. You just went to Vegas. My sales guys go to Vegas for Concur Fusion, except they take connecting flights and they share a room at the Paris. And when was the last time you see sales guys exhibiting <laughs> that kind of behavior? It just doesn't happen. It does if they're motivated. And so it's about motivating the right behaviors and it works. What, what type of dollars are we talking about on a trip? So let's talk about your sales guys going to Vegas and staying at the Paris together. What type of money are you talking about giving back to them and their wallets and how much money are we talking about to the corporate and to rocket trip? So, so we're really tapping into the fundamental know-how of employees based on what they are used to and their experiences in the consumer travel space, right? So travel like you would as a leisure traveler. Would you stay with a friend? Would you stay at an Airbnb? Now, we are limited by what's permissible under policy. So we work with several large Fortune 50 organizations where there's pretty strict travel policies. You can't stay at an Airbnb from a duty of care perspective. It's not aligned with our company policy. And we have lots 
lots of clients that embrace Airbnb as a very valid opportunity for employees to control costs. And when they do, you asked about dollars on average, an employee saves about $116 per night for every night they stay in an Airbnb instead of in a hotel. But for, for us, it's really not important what the policy is of the company. We align our program to the existing policy. So if Airbnb is permissible underspend, mm -hmm. Under policy, then we motivate that behavior. We reward for it. If it's not, then employees don't get earned value from Rocket Trip for staying in an Airbnb. So it's very easy to control the types of behaviors that a company wants to see exhibited within their workforce. Um, in terms of the absolute dollars, on average, it's say it's a hundred bucks the savings. Say it's to make it easy. How is that getting divvied up? Fifty bucks goes to the client. Fifty bucks goes to the employee. That's it, easy. That's it. Because Rocket Trip gets it like a, a like subscription a retainer? fee. Yeah, mm -hmm. we we exactly. It's a license fee. It's software it's a as a service. Program. SaaS program. So uh, we charge a, a flat fee based on the volume of travel that we manage in a given year. Um, our performance for most clients is guaranteed. So invest with Rocket Trip. We will help save you money if we don't at least return uh, your investment uh, net of what you've paid employees as a reward. We'll refund your investment because we know Rocket Trip works when it's implemented correctly. So there's no financial risk for an organization to use Rocket Trip. Um, it's really about change management. It's about giving us the time required to educate employees what the real value of this is, um, watching them save money through the platform, watching them redeem value. And that can take you know three to six months. Not everybody travels all the time. Um, but over the course of a given year, companies start to see a pretty substantial ROI is generally speaking, um, in terms of how the math plays out, companies reduce their spend between 20 and 30%. And then after employees wow. are, are, yeah, are uh, rewarded, it's about 10 to 15% net. But keep in mind that the, the employees' rewards are effectively an employee benefit program, right? So Rocket Trip is as much a cost reduction mm -hmm. platform that masquerades as an employee perk as it is an employee benefit program that pays for itself. So for every CFO that gets excited about the cost-sensitive value that we can bring to an organization in terms of cost reduction, there's an HR executive that sees this as a significant opportunity to retain talent and motivate talent from health and wellness perspective, um, but doing so in a way where they've implemented a program that pays for itself. So it's self-funding. I'd love to hear, like, how, how did you come up with this idea in the first place? So I... Um, in a former life, when I was in the ad tech space, I managed two P&Ls in Europe. Uh, and you know, I'm on the executive team, and my bonus is based on EBITDA. Right? So I'm looking at bottom line cost of, of running the business. I've got sales guys, and I can't bonus them on EBITDA because that's not how you motivate sales guys. You motivate sales guys based on quota. right? So they've got their quota, and we've got a company policy. And I am just watching the abuse. I'm watching my guys mm -hmm. purchase travel last minute. I'm watching Frustrating, them yeah. stay in the nicest hotels. And they're screwing my EBITDA, right? But I can't yell at them because they're allowed to do this under policy. Policy dictates acceptable expected behavior. So as long as you're within policy, don't ask, don't tell. Now, you know, you can make every argument that we should tighten the policy or change the policy or create, turn the screws on employees. But again, that creates friction. You can't really do that. Um, so that was the, the pain that I felt that sort of drove this, my desire to figure this out. Um, there's a much broader conversation that's not necessarily related to travel around employee motivation or human motivation. If you think about the hospitality industry and the airline industry in the leisure economy, hotels and airlines have figured out loyalty programs that make predictably rational human beings act in predictably irrational ways. If you think about how, how much these programs how powerful they are in terms of driving our behavior. We, you know, everyone's a Delta guy, United guy. You just came back from Vegas. You flew on your airline. Maybe it was Virgin. Whatever it is, you're a hotel guy, right? I'm a Starwood guy. I've got the Starwood card. We have this intense amount of loyalty to these brands 
for the aspirational value of what could be. I might get the upgrade. I might get the free Wi-Fi. I might, I might, I might, I might, I might get the late checkout, right? Whatever it is. We want something. We want to belong to something that has status. And that's natural. That's, again, that's innate. That's human. That's biological. What if we could inject that same kind of belo- that, that sense of belonging, that same program, but do it in a corporate environment? If you think about what HR programs have at their disposal to motivate employees, it's basically five arrows in the quiver. They've got salary, they've got bonus, they've got vacation days, they've got title and equity. And then there's a bunch of smaller perks, right? And snacks in the snack room, and vacation yeah, days. Yeah, I mean, we don't give Fridays. a shit about health insurance in this country. That's a That's a different podcast. Um, <laughs> but... But what about points? What about micro incentives for different kinds of behavior that are very, very meaningful to the company, but not within the domain of what's relevant to the employee, like healthcare? How do I motivate employees to be healthier? How do we motivate employees to be better corporate citizens or uh, do more community service or speak on panels? Or, or invest in a 401k because we any can't even way, get them to do that. Anywhere yeah. you want employees to invest in behaviors that aren't part of their day-to-day, you can use behavioral economics to change the equation. And and, and there's lots of studies. Uh, Richard Thaler just won the Nobel Prize this year for behavioral economics. So it is at the t- it is at the top of the pile in terms of what can positively motivate and impact an employee if implemented correctly. Um, you asked where we stumbled into this idea. It was really a combination of um, my background in social psychology combined with this pain point that I felt at my last organization combined with stumbling into, you know, so now we have this idea we want to create sort of the Starwood program for corporates, right? How do we do it? We stumbled into Google's travel program which is effectively an incredible place to start if you think about it. It's the perfect storm of um, not just a big total addressable market. It's it's one of the biggest addressable markets that exists today. It's it, it, Travel is the third largest producer of GDP globally. It's an incredibly large space, number one. Number two, it's a pain point for every CFO on the planet. There isn't a single company on this planet that has employees with discretionary spend in travel where there isn't this friction point that employees want more comfort and convenience and companies want lower cost. And so it's a friction point for virtually every company. And number three, Google proved that it works. It's not like we were starting from scratch and seeing like, if we build it, will they come? Google proved that if you build a program that motivates and rewards employees for more cost-effective behavior, two things happen. One, costs go down. Two, culture and employee sat goes up because employees now feel empowered and motivated with a perk. It's an employee benefit that lets them exhibit or motivates them to exhibit very, very company-friendly behavior. So Has Google ever uh, ever been upset that you went ahead and, and uh, monetized this and ran with it? Or, no, uh, the guy know. who built it at Google, uh, Mike Tagney, is an advisor to Rocket Trip. He's a great guy. Uh, he's still at Google. Uh, and we, we've effectively built the, co- the company uh, in, in no small part with a lot of his guidance in terms of what works at Google, what didn't work at Google, how you could rebuild this if you were going to commercialize it. Our program operates in, in many ways very similarly to what Google built, but in many ways it's very different because what works at Google wouldn't work at some of or other larger organizations that we work with. So question on on cash versus points. To me, yeah. that always seems like, you know, cash is one thing, but cash doesn't have status in a small amount, right. right? You need a lot and you need more and more and more to be rich, right? So do you ever think about doing points or is that part of the option that you could offer? Can you match status or things like that that, you know, employees yeah. might want? So so the, the incentives that we offer are financial in nature, but it's not cash for exactly the reason that you just pointed out and a couple of others. Um, cash is a... It is not a good metric of recognition. Um, cash is something that you get in your paycheck every day. If we give you cash, 
uh, in your paycheck, it goes to groceries. You have no idea, no, no, there's no recognition, there's no attachment to anything, there's no cultural benefit that comes with receiving cash for a job well done. What we give you is we give you points in the Rocket Trip platform that have cash equivalents. So if you save the company $100 on a trip, you will get $50 worth of points Rocket Trip points that can be redeemed through our platform for $50 worth of merchandise. And you can get merchandise from Amazon and Best Buy and J. Crew and Bloomingdale's. You can donate your points to charity. You can gift them to a colleague for a promotion or a job well done. We've had companies where they've given points out and employees have redeemed and remodeled their home with Home Depot rewards. They've bought an outdoor movie theater and invited their whole team over to watch movies. And it sounds silly, but that's very important. Going through the process of redeeming something, you can get a Visa cash card out of the platform, but you've got to do something with it. you got to go and buy your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or girlfriend an Amazon Kindle. And every time they take out that Kindle, you think to yourself, and so do they, wow, that company's awesome because they implemented Rocket Trip to reduce their costs and reward this individual. Just been getting money. things nonstop. Yeah, that's cool. That's right. And also Bitcoin. And Bitcoin. That's yeah. pretty awesome. Yeah. So you're basically you could theoretically be getting an investment from this. It's not just buying shoes on Amazon, which is quite interesting. That's right. I like that a lot. It was a good choice. Especially, I would be only doing that. I'd be flying given, the worst. Especially tickets. given where Bitcoin is. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I would be well, literally doing this anything week. this week. This right. week, Any, anything can change. I would be taking a rowboat over to London if I could get two thousand dollars in Bitcoin every time I flew. <laughs> I would be rich right now. You know, I would just be done. <laughs> so, well, listen, this is a perfect, perfect place to uh, take a quick second. Um, two things on my mind. Uh, one is. Uh, the snack that you have provided us today. So, of course, our, our guests are uh, kind enough to, to bring us a little nosh that we could all enjoy. So what did you go ahead and bring us? Today? Well, we're in New York City, so what else can you bring? And it's the morning, so we brought bagels. Fantastic. Uh, may I ask from where? Uh, I don't know. Excellent. Ba- the, the bagel store. Let's talk about business strategy and how you create an unfair playing field for yourself by joining a venture fund and kind of how that is unique to your founder story. everybody, this is Vikram Iyer, former advisor to President Barack Obama. Have you been opening your Twitter account or Facebook feeds or even just talking to families and friends and wondering what the heck is going on in this country? Well, it's not as bad as you think, but we're going to unpack that for you. Join me at the American Enough podcast on the Mouth Media Network as we unpack the policies, executive orders, and daily kerfuffles that are shaping not just this administration, but the modern face of America's politics. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. Keep up with the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Travel Biz Show. That's Travel B-I-Z Show. Our episodes are available on iTunes and Google Play and online at travelisyourbusiness.com. Plus, there are a lot more great shows on Mouth Media Network. Take a trip to mouthmedianetwork.com to enjoy them all. And remember, we love fan mail. Drop us a note to say hi, suggest a guest, or if you'd like to become a sponsor on the show, email us at travelbizshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. All right, Dan. Uh, so we talked about the mission of Rocket Trip. Now let's turn to business strategy. So Dan, I was wondering, the corporate travel space has a, you know, a big player and a, a few big players mm-hmm. in it. Uh, and working with them, you know, I'm, I'm interested in how it's been in working with the Concur and the larger players in the corporate travel sure, space. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I think 
One of the interesting nuances of the corporate travel space is that we talked about how large it is, right? One and a quarter trillion. I'm not a travel person. What's concur? Like, it's in the same world, right? They're the beast. They're the beast. Yeah, they're the mm-hmm. biggest travel and expense yeah. platform globally. Yep. Just got acquired by uh, by SAP a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. A multi billion dollar organization. Yep. Uh, very very large. Um, and and there's a couple of others, but not many. And that's what's so special about corporate travel is that you know there's basically four online booking tools that really matter. Five TMCs. Uh, a couple of expense platforms, and that's it. And so it's it's very hard to to crack into the industry. But once you're in, that's the moat, and then it's very easy to move around the space. Uh, but but one of the the early theses of Rocket Trip was: look, we can either compete within this industry and and rebuild an online booking tool, rebuild a travel management company, rebuild an expense platform, which there are folks that are doing. Um, it's just not not core to our our philosophy of providing. A behavioral change technology to this space because again, you know, this is a much bigger conversation than just about travel. If it works in travel, it'll work everywhere. And so, our interest is in figuring out for travel and then expanding broader than that, not focusing on trying to disintermediate or disrupt the existing ecosystem. And and that's actually a good thing and a bad thing. So, so the pro of of that positioning where we're platform agnostic means that we do enjoy very strong partnerships with Sabre and Amadeus, with Concur, uh, with all major TMCs, with all major expense platforms. Um, it's just a function of a business development relationship and making sure that the numbers work for our partners. And so you ask sort of, you know, how do you make it work? You make it work with revenue sharing, you make it work with lead generation, you make it work with um, adding adding value to their sales process, right? So, you know, Concur in particular has done a really good job of penetrating the Fortune 1000. There ain't all that much more they can sell. And so anytime we can offer an opportunity for them to cross-sell or upsell an existing client with a new product is a benefit not only to us, but to them as well. Um, travel agencies have been some of them have been better than others most of them have been great in recognizing that um, you know, look innovator die and we we've got to stop um, we've got to stop acting like uh, we're going to own this middle position forever right so the typical travel management company makes money by charging their clients a service fee to provide a service and then also makes money in overrides and commissions from the, the the vendors and that middleman position is a very dangerous position to be in because eventually market equilibriums figure it out you know intermediate disintermediaries come in um, and middlemen get squeezed uh, and so i think what they're recognizing is that they've got to innovate in ways that position themselves closer to their clients interests the the days of pulling the wool over their client's eyes and saying, you know, we're going to charge you a service fee, we're going to make money, how we even make money, don't worry about it, are sort of over uh, because of so many different shifts in the way the, the industry is moving. Number one, millennials um, represent a type of business traveler that is no longer complacent with the status quo. Um, you know, these, these shitty, outdated online booking tools, um, having to pick up the phone and call an agent to book travel when you're used to just booking travel in two <laughs> seconds on Hitmonk or Kayak. Then why do I have to do this? So they get- How many times do you scratch your head when you walk by a Liberty Travel? <laughs> well, well, look, man, I grew up in a day and age oh. where, yeah, that's how you book that's travel. You, that's you it. That's what you did. You walked into the red awning and there mm-hmm. was. And like, that's how you book travel. No. And and the new generation of travelers, who, by the way, millennials now make up the largest percent of business travelers globally, didn't grow up like that, right? Mm-hmm. They grew up where you just like, go on Hotel Tonight and boom, done. It's, it's over. It was one mm-hmm. click. I'm checked out. The corporate travel space has not caught up. So to your question about sort of corporate innovation and, and what stifled it – it's two things, really. One is um, it didn't have to innovate because you weren't losing customers who were completely brand disloyal if your product wasn't 
top-notch. And in the consumer space, you do lose customers that quickly. Expedia and Priceline and Kayak and Hitmonk and Hotel Tonight have, are fighting for, for active users every minute of every day. In a corporate environment, the procurement team decides what platform you're going to use, and that's what you're using potentially for the next 10 years, whether you like it or not. And so there's a much lower bar in terms of the requirement to innovate in order to maintain relevance. Now that's slowly changing, where you're starting to see a lot of um, a lot of you know lack of compliance because the technology is not where it needs to be. You're seeing a lot of um, overspend or, or, or sort of bad behavior um, because the corporate travel space hasn't innovated fast enough. And because of that, it's creating friction with the travel management community. And travel managers are stuck in this tricky place where they want their employees to comply. They want to buy products employees like to use. There just aren't that many of them. And so, again, that, that's where the opportunity comes in to innovate in this space where, yeah, it's tricky because you're either competing with or have to partner with very, very large incumbents who have a lot of money invested in maintaining the status quo. But if you can figure it out, you can get opportunities to scale very, very quickly because it opens up sales funnels and sales opportunities that are just quite massive. Um, how did you figure that out? Like, where, how did you get to a point where you were in the room or had leverage we, with them? We, um, we actually, it was a mistake. We fell into it. So the original <laughs> thesis, the, the original operating model was, uh, and, you know, to, to my, it was my mistake uh, coming into the space, not as a travel guy, looking at the corporate travel space. And it was like, wow, this is so fucked up. Like, why are people still using these systems? It doesn't make any sense. Let travelers use the same types of consumer platforms that we all know and love to use in the consumer space, give them choice, give them flexibility, give them a budget to beat, right? Give them an opportunity to save the company money within policy and reward them for it. That works in the in the SME, SMB space. And, and, and small, medium-sized businesses should be unmanaged. It makes sense that they're unmanaged because if you're spending below two, $3 million in travel, travel's not a meaningful enough cost center on your P&L to force employees into a single purchase funnel. And so all you're doing by forcing employees to book through a single funnel is you're creating more friction than you need. And you're not really going to save that much money by doing so. And so I fundamentally believe that a company with you know less than 500 employees or less than a couple million bucks in travel um, should be unmanaged and should let employees book wherever they want. You want to use Hotel Tonight? Great. Airbnb? Great. Priceline, name your own price? Great. We're going to have a policy that tells you what you're allowed to do, like you know either month, nightly caps per city or it's you know a round trip flight limits on how much you can spend or you know above six hours you can fly business class. But we don't have enough. We don't have enough volume to command negotiated rates and pricing discounts from vendors. So it doesn't make sense for us to force our employees into a suboptimized purchase funnel. Let's let's optimize the chances that they'll make a favorable choice by giving them the choices they know and love to use in the in the consumer space. Once you're in the sort of five million of spend or more, you're getting into an arena where um, cost sensitivity can really impact your bottom line and and you've got enough volume where you can consolidate bargaining and negotiate some pretty significant discounts with airlines and with hotels. And so it does make sense to funnel everything into a single purchase funnel. But we only realized this about two years into our growth as a business, that the small and medium-sized space, we had a product, we still do have a product that allows, uh, we call it open market purchasing, where you go to rockettrip.com, you get a budget to beat, and then you go and book travel wherever you want to book it. That works. It's just a, it's it's not an optimized user experience because it means the employee has to do two things. They've got to come to Rocketrip first and then go and mm -hmm. book travel. Anytime, and you know, going to Rocket Trip takes 15 seconds, but anytime you're asking an employee to do something different than they're used to doing, you're creating friction and it's not an optimized workflow. 
what we've discovered is that by partnering with the largest TMCs and the Concurs, mm -hmm. the online booking tools of the world, we can inject our, so our, our platform into the existing workflow. And so if you log into Concur, inside Concur, you get a budget to beat. And so you don't have to go to a separate system. And the budget to beat is now calibrated mm. against the existing company's policy, their negotiated rates, their historical behavior, the traveler's itinerary. But it's all the same workflow. You're going to concur to book travel anyways. And for us, being able to operate in a way that caters to the, the Fortune, call it Fortune 2000, which is what we cater to today, um, means that the workflow is, is streamlined and optimized for employees. Employees have a much better user experience because they're going to one place to check out. Number two, the the you know, just by virtue of unit economics, it's a much more profitable opportunity for us to work with a customer that spends $50 million a year in travel versus a customer that spends $5 million a year in travel. So we focus on the, the sort of upper end of the mid-market and the, and, and the rest of the large enterprise space, and that's been very profitable for the company. Well, Have you found that like procurement is really the the hassle here? Like it seems like if procurement is making these decisions that affect travel management, that maybe we should start with innovating procurement in big companies. Since I think I think some companies I think some companies are innovating procurement. I mean, yeah. We work with some of the biggest brands in the world. Um, some of them have very conservative procurement teams. Some of them have very progressive procurement teams. The best procurement teams recognize that vendors are their partners. And they are there to improve workflow. The worst procurement teams um, went want to, to make more workflow went for to, others. Went to school to learn how to act and negotiate, uh, and and they see the primary role as squeezing vendors on on cost. Um, and and our team understands that there are different personalities, different profiles. But generally speaking, travel doesn't always necessarily roll up into procurement. We're seeing that more and more as a trend today because travel managers, as an as an industry, have not done a good enough job of keeping up with innovation and finding ways to innovate. It's it's Generally speaking, though, again, there are exceptions to this rule, a fairly conservative population, a fairly risk-averse population, um, and and that's not their fault, right? They, they're hired – let me paint this picture. They're hired by their CFO to control cost and mitigate risk, keep employees safe. The way they respond to that challenge is by implementing policies and then tightening those policies to make sure that their employees, thousands of these people that they don't really know, comply with a single set of rules that they've implemented. Next thing you know, the guys that travel the most, the, the men and women that are on the front lines, the salespeople who are generally speaking very highly compensated uh, and very important to the organization are now subject to this travel policy that makes no sense for them. So what do they do? They say, fuck it, I'm not going to comply. And they go what the industry calls rogue, and they don't comply with the travel policy. The travel manager complains to the CFO. The CFO goes to the top line sales earner, the best producer in the company, says, why didn't you comply? And he or she says, because this doesn't make any sense for me, and I, I'm pulling in $10 million a year for your business, so leave me alone. So what, yeah. Who do you think wins that argument? Right. right? It's always the sales guy that wins that argument, and that puts the travel manager in an incredibly difficult spot because on the one hand, their job is to control costs and mitigate risk. On the other hand, they've built a program that doesn't align with the needs of the organization. And so you know, the, the, it's, it's, it's really that third spoke of, the, of the, uh, the third leg of the stool that they've missed, which is your job is to do primarily three things, not two things. The first two are control costs, mitigate risk. That's fine. The third is to design a program that aligns with the needs of the organization. And the organization is not the masses ignoring the exceptions to the rule because generally speaking, the exceptions to the rule are the ones that matter most. They're the ones that spend the most money and are traveling the most frequently, but they're also the ones that are driving the highest performance for the organization. And those are the, one, those are the ones that are worth listening to and investing in. And so you know, I, I think I think that's a really important dynamic in the travel industry that's not very well understood. Is you've got a whole class of people in this travel management community that that haven't been given a fair 
fight or a seat at the table in this discussion. And that's why companies are basically saying, look, let's treat this like a product. Let's throw it into procurement. Some companies put it in HR. Most companies still have it rolling up into finance, either through procurement or not. Um, but but we focus on conversations with not just travel management, but but more often uh, heads of, of human resources and heads of finance. Because as we talked about, Rocket Trip is a cost reduction platform. So it's a financial benefit with an HR benefit, or it's an HR benefit with a financial component to it. Now, you know, I have a, a close friend, uh, Amit Malik, what up? He is, um, yeah, he's, he's a long time consultant. He's been on the road for decade plus 15 yeah. years. And I remember there was a uh, one point, I think he lived uh, bi-coastal between LA and New York. And this is probably for two years, actually, he was living in a Sheridan and, you know, in a, yeah. and I just was shocked at the amount of money that he's just pissing down the toilet for the company, but they didn't care. They're happy as a pig and shit that he's delivering and, sure. you know, their clients ultimately it funnels down to their clients. That's right. Is that, I mean, is that like the perfect organization to work with an Accenture or Bain or McKinsey or, you know? Yes and no. I mean, it's, it's the perfect philosophy. It's the perfect, it's the perfect uh, philosophy <laughs> of, of a company that's completely cost insensitive where there's a huge opportunity to reduce costs. Yeah. The challenge we have with professional services is just what you just said, which is that they're, they don't care because the company, the client's paying for it. So think about that. It's it's the consulting agency uh, or the firm is passing through the cost of travel to their to end the client. client. Yeah. And so now it, it represents a really interesting scenario. We actually have a couple of com customers, we call it billable travel, where the customer of ours is reselling the concept of Rocket Trip to their clients, right? So I can go to you mm -hmm. and say, hey, we're going to use Rocket Trip to help oh, reduce <laughs> your Cost and then they are us. all of a sudden the hero. And then they're the hero. Oh, now, so now it's, it's a hard sell, though, because Rocket Trip today is not you know, status quo. It's not yeah. what everyone's just doing. It will be soon, right? We will be the Kleenex of, of corporate travel. We're not there yet. Uh, and when we get there, then that conversation becomes much easier because their clients are actually going to start requiring Bain and McKinsey and Accenture to use Rocket Trip to reduce their clients' costs. Yeah, yeah. But until then, it is an evangelical sale. We are going to our customers and we're educating them in terms of what behavioral economics is and how incentivized behavioral change can help create a positive environment for them and their employees. It's a tall ask to get them to go and resell that concept to their clients. But what about convincing Amit, right, who is the lead on, you know, whether yep. it's, I think it's, he, he does healthcare consulting, yep. right? So, I mean, he's talking to all these huge, um, you know, hospital uh, systems and things like that. What if he now pioneers that? Because well, he, he wants to make money and he, he wants goes, to get the he, Amazon yeah. gift card. So, so first of all, if his clients are listening to this podcast, it's going to be a very easy sell for him. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, for sure, you know, what will happen internally, actually very often it's ex-Googlers, right, who, who see mm -hmm. this concept, see, you know, get introduced to Rocket Trip. Yeah. Um, we just closed a deal with a very large real estate company in New York, uh, a very popular uh, co-working space mm -hmm. that had an ex-Googler inside the company who said, Give, give some more, uh, some more yeah. insight to who this mysterious lots of co-working space <laughs> might be. Lots of co-working spaces in here. That's true. Um, that's you know, ex-Googler, worked at Google, loved the concept. Holy shit. Like, why aren't, why isn't every company doing this? And yeah. introduces us to leadership team. And, and that's Fantastic. how, that's how our business works. Excellent. Um, Real quick note, this is probably the best veggie cream cheese I've had. You're welcome. For real. Glad, it's glad to excellent. hear it. It's excellent. And uh, Mark, uh, who's uh, behind the board, uh, gave a huge thumbs up as well. So that's excellent. <laughs> Mark, Mark's, actually, Mark's actually a complete mute. You're not allowed to talk. So they, they, and nobody could hear you. That's great. <laughs> it's like a mime. <laughs> Anonymous bagels. 
Anonymous New York City Bagels. They're New York Bagels. Yeah. Apparently, it's the water. Of course, not apparently. It's 100%. And the pizza. Yeah, that's right. I have a question about competition. Yeah. You know, I noticed recently Expensify has their Expensify rewards. Yeah. Not sure how long that's been going on. But for me, it kind of happens at the end of the process, right? It's not happening during booking. To me, I just kind of discover, oh, I saved somehow $150. I have no idea. Yeah, but I thought I got a good price. I was like, where are they looking? So does it does that affect you guys, or is it no. just a totally different use case? How do you see that? Well, uh, so, so I think about it a couple of ways. One is the market is huge, and we're creating this category. Uh, we've coined this term incentivized behavioral change, and it's sort of caught on, and, and it's replacing uh, gamification, right? This industry has long struggled with gamification. Amex tried with Badgeville and failed. Concur tried price to beat. That didn't work. Carlson had their own product. We're now working with them closely to to implement rocketry for their customers. So gamification is not an old concept. The the concept that failed was uh, the value exchange, right? We want to reward employees for great behavior. What are we willing to reward them? Classic gamification theory uh, is predicated on the concept that you can give non-casher or virtual recognition to employees in exchange for behavior. And as it turns out in travel, that doesn't work. And so the old school gamification platforms relied on leaderboards and digital high fives, pats on the back badges, right? Like, hey, you you booked 14 days in advance. You get an early booker badge. And you've got a guy who's earning Great. half a million dollars a year for booking 14 days in advance. Really give a shit about this reminds me badge. of like the stars you got on a board in elementary Brutal. school. Brutal. Yeah, so that's star. really interesting, right? We're effectively implementing these programs trying to save companies hundreds if not you know millions if not billions of dollars on travel and we're giving employees elementary school gold stars but without the pizza party and no pizza there's party. no, no darn pizza party that was the whole point of getting all the stars you get a classroom pizza party and right. it's and, yeah, it's, and it's a shame because there was millions and millions and millions of dollars invested in trying to get it right but what everybody failed to get right was that the, the sort of behavioral economics of high perceived value low actual value only works if the employee falls for it, right? So there's a famous study in Stockholm where uh, the the government wanted to get employees to, uh, I think it was the government, wanted to get employees to, or not employees, sorry, travelers to be healthier. And there was the escalator or there were stairs. And you could choose the escalator or the stairs. And everybody chooses the escalator. Why? Because what we talked about, human beings are lazy and selfish, right? And so it's easier (laughs) to take the escalator. To take the stairs, what it took was painting the stairs the color of a piano and putting in technology where every time you stepped on a stair, it played a different note. And that was yep. enough to nudge people, human beings, over to the stairs. And so this is all the stuff that, that Danny Kahneman and Thaler and, and Danny Ariely talk about, which is creating predictable irrationality, nudging nudging people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do with high perceived value, right? The, the sound, the reward of hearing the sound, but low actual value. It costs nothing to implement that. That works if the choice between decision A and decision B is de minimis, right? There's really negligible value that I get or lose for for either of those choices. Like, you know, choose the red pen or the blue pen. If you don't care, I'll give you a, a gold star for choosing the blue pen. I can get you to choose the blue pen. But if it's coach instead of business class, there's no amount of gold stars I can give you to, to sway your decision. I have to create value exchange for you to offset the cost of not what I think you're giving up, but what you think you're giving up. And that's a really important distinction. So Rocket Trip is, is all about the predictive technology to determine what the employee will need to offset their cost in order to get them to change their behavior. And that's why this is so powerful. So our focus is entirely on the behavioral change side of it. We're not trying to create an expense platform, not trying to create an online booking tool. All of the other competitors in the space are treating this concept either as an afterthought or as the core fundamental part of their their 
platform, which is a travel management company, and they'll fail because of it. So, you know, I, number one, the industry is big enough where we need multiple players. We created this incentivized behavioral change space. We now have entrants coming into the space, mostly focused on the unmanaged travel ecosystem, which I think is, is an interesting ecosystem. Unfortunately, the acquisition costs are way too high, um, and, and the opportunity is just not there from a per-customer basis to drive real value, mm-hmm. or at least that's that was, that was our focus. And because of our position as we're not trying to compete with any existing infrastructure, Structure made the most sense for us to move up market. So actually, we we don't really have much overlap with Expensive. I know we've got a published sort of partnership with them, but we don't have a ton of customers that overlap with them. Most of our customer base overlaps with um, expense and online booking tool platforms that cater to a much larger uh, type of customer. Dan, I want to take a quick uh, a different beat and take a step back. Um, the the company's been around for less than five years. Yep. And uh, based on our common connections on LinkedIn, I could only imagine that your journey as a founder was deeply rooted in the startup ecosystems in New York. Um, can you talk through the process of actually sure. starting this company? So you said you had the idea. We, we understand the genesis, but not everyone with an idea that sees an arbitrage or an opportunity can actually actually bring it mm-hmm. come to life. And you're quite far along now. So uh, how big is the team? Uh, when did you hit your stride? And, and how the hell did you get here? Sure. Um, so the team is uh, it's about 60, 65 people. We're all based in New York. Sure. We have another 30 or so. How does so. that feel? Uh, <laughs> some days, some days not even close to big enough, and some days yeah. too big. But, yeah. You know that that's part of the that's part of the the, the game. Yeah. Um, started four years ago, four and a half years ago, uh, with an idea. Um, I had an unfair advantage. Starting companies is all about giving yourself unfair advantages, right? Mm-hmm. Because on an equal playing field, everybody loses. You got to have an unfair advantage. And my unfair advantage was um, I joined a venture fund as an as an entrepreneur in residence, which gave me um, which gave me basically a petri dish. It wasn't a large stint though. It was only. Six months. six months. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was by design, right? The yeah. idea was, look, I'm going to join this fund for six months. Mm-hmm. It's going to give me a business card, a reason to network, a reason to talk to people, an opportunity to look at deal flow. And I would either go and join an, as an operator in one of the companies or start my own. And that was that was the game plan. And it was only designed to last, I think, six months. And then we'd reevaluate. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. it was literally on like the you know, fifth month and 28th day that, that we raised the round for Rocket Trip and, and off to the races we were. Um, but I spent those six months actually mostly disqualifying other ideas. So we looked at a company that we wanted to build in the uh, B2B uh, online um, uh, commercial foreign exchange space, right? So when companies are exchanging currency between their international subsidiaries, the banks uh, charge a fee for that, and and at scale, it's actually a lot of money. And there's ways to now a lot. There's been a lot of innovation in the last five years in the consumer space with foreign exchange transactions, but nothing really in the corporate space. There's an opportunity there. There's an opportunity in the social uh, social sort of hospitality space and the social airline space. Um, there's a, we had all these ideas that we wanted to build. It was basically cycling through them, trying to figure out why they wouldn't work, and we came up for reasons with why they wouldn't work, and decided not to pursue them. And I say we it was it was myself and, and the partner at the fund. Um, and then we stumbled onto this concept of sort of you know loyalty points for corporates and then stumbled onto Google's program. And again, the nice thing about being at a venture fund is you get to use resources. So we, we effectively put the idea itself through a full diligence cycle as if we were raising money for mm. it to see what came out the other side. And what that means is we talked to you know, dozens and dozens of CFOs, talked to hundreds of employees, lots of them at Google, to figure out sort of what, what the economics here look like. We talked to the you know, heads of travel of very large organizations, Comcast and Intel and et cetera, to figure out, you know, would this really work? 
and what came out the other side of that diligence was, you know, we probably invest in this. Yeah, like this is yeah. this is stuff doesn't usually look this good. Even though there's no business model, even yeah. though there's no business no plan, company, even though no there's nothing, no company, yeah. no beta, no product, the idea really has merit here. Does so I ended business up, plan not matter? Does is it, it just a brainstorm at this point? Uh, yeah, but you usually don't get to a venture fund with a brainstorm, right? Mm -hmm. So what I'm talking about is the unfair advantage that we had right. to effectively brainstorm inside of a venture fund. So you've got you're basically accelerating the process dramatically. Um, it's expensive validation you just went through, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, on someone else's dime, it was yeah. great. Uh, it was free, um, and so we. Um, we ended up raising a friends and family round. I think it was about half a million bucks, um, which the fund uh, participated in. And then, um, as was that mostly friends and family? I generally find that it's it's usually strategics or just people that you've you know. Come it, de it depends. Career versus it, yeah, it depends. True I mean, friends and family. Yeah, no. For for me, it, you know, it was a combination of both. Um, mm. But but generally speaking, it is a function. I, I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs that talk about that first round and yeah. sort of how do I raise well, the first round? How many people were in that round of five hundred thousand? We don't disclose it, uh, okay. but it wasn't a lot, and and okay. that, and that's really important. I'll talk about why in a second. Um, we we raised that money and then we put the company through Y Combinator. Mm -hmm. um, and Y Combinator was really interesting. As I mentioned, we'd already raised a little bit of money. Most people that go through YC have not raised any money. It's a bunch of college kids that are so dropping out of school. Out. Moved out to Mountain View for three mm -hmm. months. And then Demo Day there is like um, yeah, it's Shark Tank on steroids, yeah, it's, right? It's, it's just, it's just a feeding Bowl. frenzy. It's nuts. Mm -hmm. um, half of the investors don't even speak English. They're just like tossing mm -hmm. checks around. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, because the market was really frothy back then, and in, in some ways it still is. Um, but a lot of companies will raise these massive convertible note rounds, like you know, two, three million dollars yep. with a hundred investors giving you two million, you know, two hundred thousand dollar checks, and it's just, it's or, or twenty thousand dollar checks. It's crazy, and and I actually discourage entrepreneurs from doing that. It's 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 validating, and it feels good to have that much inbound interest. But if you have you know ten investors giving you fifty thousand dollars each to raise a half a million dollar convertible note, you now have 10 investors that all have information rights on your business. And some of those investors actually really need that money. And so they're more involved than they should be. And they push and they prod and they pry and, they, and they're just in your face and they're annoying. And you want to limit that. And so rule of thumb is you never raise money from anyone who absolutely positively couldn't afford to lose it. And it's like going to Vegas for them. Absolutely. And they have to understand it. Mm -hmm. um, so, But we weren't in that position. We actually, we ended up raising an A round right before YC, which was 3 million or something like that, and then raise another 3 million right after, so total of six. Are you uh, able to disclose the valuation on the A? Um, honestly, I don't remember what it, okay. was. it was. It was in the teens somewhere. Um, nice. And uh, and we raised it from one one lead investor, Canaan Partners, uh, and, and it was part of my network. The, the guy at the fund, Warren Lee, was on the board of uh, my last company at Tremor Media, which is now Tremor Video, uh, or is now Talaria. They changed their name again. Uh, but anyways... Um, so he he let her A, and then we raised a little bit more money and accelerated around this company was doing well. Um, and I'm, I'm dramatically fast-forwarding here because there's a yeah. lot of ups and downs and successes and failures over the course of the last four years. But in terms of financing history, we raised our A. And then in uh, June of 16, uh, we raised a Series B, a $9 million Series B that Bessemer Ventures uh, led. And so uh, Alex Ferrara at Bessemer joined our board. Um, and then we'll raise our next round of funding some probably, probably in the next sort of 18 months, I guess. Excellent. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, this is fascinating. I, I, I kind of want to have yeah. another half an hour to talk about I know, right? going. <laughs> I know. Uh, However, uh, that, that's all the time we have for the second segment. And when we come back, we're going to go off the beaten path. Uh, questions uh, that are more uh, personally inspired. 
If you're a business decision maker, you should listen to this. The show you're listening to is produced by Mouth Media Network, a podcasting network focused on the business of lifestyle. Because of our team's background and deep connections with brands, influencers, and ecosystems, we offer a tremendous opportunity to bring your company's message and products in front of decision makers from several verticals, including fashion, beauty, travel, materials and textiles, health and fitness, and lifestyle. To explore opportunities to partner, email us at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. And now, on with the show. Oh, the beaten path. It is off the beaten path uh, where we ask more personal inspired questions uh, from our guest and we decide the order in which we ask them randomly with the help of our favorite airline personnel, which we'll listen to right now. Ladies and gentlemen, would passenger John Matson please report to gate 23A? John Matson, that oh, sounds hi. like your name, bud. That's me. Yeah. Um, thank you, airline personnel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dan, um, uh, what's the most inspiring place that you've ever been? Wow, the most inspiring place that I've ever been. Um, most inspiring place was uh, that I've ever been. Um, is probably a um, a very remote hotel in the middle of nowhere in Utah that I took my wife. Where's Utah? What's Utah? No. <laughs> uh, that I took my wife to uh, on on our uh, it was her baby moon uh, right before we had our, our first child and that was pretty awesome. Great. How old nice. is? Yeah. Uh, he's twenty child. months now. Fantastic! Congratulations. Thank you. What was inspiring about Utah? Uh, just, just the scenery, the situation. We're having our first kid. She's amazing. Everything's changing. Yeah. It's it's awesome. was, it was a great time in our life. Excellent. And uh, next up. Attention, passenger Nick Vivian. Please report to gate 72. It's Nick. It's hard to follow that one. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really tough. I'm, I'm kind of like thinking, oh, that's really sweet. Yeah. So, so let's what, go from sweet to annoying. As I generally do very quickly. Travel pet peeve. What is the most... So this is the journalist. This yeah. is, yeah, right, of course. It's like you got to make the pivot quick. What's yeah. the most annoying thing that happens to you on the road? You know, like, what is the thing? You know, I have, I have a long list, of delays. course. You know, delays. Just delays. Delays? Delays. Is there a part of delays specifically? Like, I, I, I think there's something so phenomenally fascinating about the fact that we can, as a, as a species, build these tin cans and throw them up 30,000 feet in the sky and literally... Almost nothing ever goes wrong. It's just an incredible feat of humankind to be able to do that. Yet, half the time, your flight's delayed, and you can't get to where you want to go on time. And that's just such a pain in the ass. No, they land on time everything. now because they overestimate the travel. It's going to take seven <laughs> hours to or get they just, from... Or they just, yeah. speed, up, or they just yeah. speed up. From New York to Florida, yeah, all of a sudden, it's a four-and-a-half-hour trip. Delays, <laughs> just, delays just screw up everything. And, and, and it's, in, in some cases, it's just frivolous stuff, right? Like the crew overslept or like stuff like that that just really shouldn't happen. I think the United States does a pretty terrible job and, and probably should um, – um, have some government oversight into what's going on in, in our travel space. Just the same way as, you know, there's a reason European travel is so much more efficient, so much better, and so much more customer-friendly than uh, the, the the situation going on in the U.S. I think the airlines in the U.S. have been given way too much flexibility to operate the way they want to operate versus operate the way their, their clients need them to operate. 
Sounds like an opportunity, though. Yeah, it could be. Point. Could be. Or just wait till the squirrels get into the hyperloop, and then we're sitting there. We're like, oh, it's only gonna take us an hour to That's get right. to LA from New York. But now the squirrels have eaten through it, and now we're stuck. <laughs> you know, what are we gonna do? Get on an airplane? Oh, I'm never getting on an airplane. Oh man, those tin cans. Six uh. hours in a plane. <laughs> yeah, one day. That's right. One day. One day. All right, and the next passenger, pub and ball, report to the information desk. Of course, that comes to me. Um, creating an unfair playing field for yourself or advantage. Um, if you look back at your childhood, um, I'm sure, first of all, this is not the first time that you've created an opportunity uh, mm. to get ahead. So I'm wondering from your childhood, what is the first time you can remember that you did um, intentionally create an unfair advantage for yourself? My brother and I uh, used to teach uh, senior citizens uh, computers when we were like in our teens. Cool. That is unfair. Uh, it was unfair. <laughs> uh, it was unfair, except what was unfair for them about it was they used to forget everything we taught them. Oh. So you just teach the exact same thing every week. It was the easiest way to earn 20 bucks an hour. And you know your fundamentals, <laughs> probably. And, and you just got really good. 20 bucks an hour is pretty good. That's yeah, solid. Well, like they just forget 13, how much they're paying you. You keep going up and start at 10 and that's right. 12. That's right. That's right. So that was, I that don't was recommend a, fleecing seniors. Yeah, we, the <laughs> my, my brothers and I were, were entrepreneurial since we were kids. So. How old were you then? Oh, I don't know. I was like 12, 13. I was, you know, I was walking dogs and shoveling cars out of yeah. snow since I can remember those. How much did you charge for a uh, driveway to be shoveled? Standard double driveway. What was it? So this was Manhattan. I grew up in the city, so it was driveway. You were a New York City town. It was like it was like you were you where know, chipping, you're a townie. chipping ice. Yeah, where? Manhattan. Manhattan. Yeah, huh. we didn't we didn't call ourselves townies. That was the, I B, call you the guys B and T townies. crowd. Was the town. Yeah. yeah. No, I grew up on the Upper East Side, and then Upper West Side, and then Chelsea. Um, so uh, I don't know. We used to charge like fifty bucks a car. I mean, that was that was people were in a real bind, right? And yeah. It was a lot of work, so you could really charge whatever you wanted to. I think I think we were charging fifty bucks back then. This was like Shit, the this was like the late eighties, early nineties. So 90s. with New York, right? Yeah, what are we yeah, charging? I was doing twenty dollars a yeah. driveway, and that included the car. Yeah, no. So maybe now it's like two hundred and fifty a car. I mean, what Something with, like with the way that, things yeah. are in New York? Maybe I should just do that. <laughs> Anybody? Let's just <laughs> wait till it ices over five hundred a car. That's probably yeah. Right. It's gonna be your side hustle this whole winter. I guess everyone has garages in their apartments now. Awesome. Well, listen, that's all the time we have, unfortunately, for this episode of Travel is Your Business. Um, Thank you so much, Dan Roosh, for uh, joining us today. Thank you. Great to be here. What is the best way that folks could connect with you? And what types of people are you looking to connect with these days? Oh, sure. Well, we're hiring. So always looking for really smart, talented people in the New York area to join our team. Uh, Check out our jobs board at rockatrip.com forward slash jobs. Uh, Otherwise, feel free to follow us on Twitter. Uh, on Instagram at RocketTripHQ. Uh, you can follow me at Dan Roosh on Twitter um, or email us info at RocketTrip.com. RocketTrip is uh, RocketTrip with one T, R-O-C-K-E-T-R-I-P. Excellent. Well, an absolute pleasure. Thank you for the bagels. Thank you for your insights. Thank you. And uh, for John Matson. Bon voyage. And Nick Vivian. Am I supposed to say something pithy as a goodbye? What a, that, that's the one right there. You just nailed You actually just nailed it. Pithy goodbye. And for myself, Public Ball, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for uh, being with us. And we hope you enjoyed your stay. This has been Travel Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for the show, or to become a sponsor, email us at podcast at travelisyourbusiness.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Travel Biz Show. That's Travel B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, travelisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. 
This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.